You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hey, full and thriving fam. I wanted to let you in on something super exciting. As you know, we open the doors to the Recovery Collective only three times a year, and the next round is coming up for a limited time between January 19th and February 1st. This is honestly the best time for you to join the Recovery Collective because when you join, you will also get access to every single recorded session for all of 2023, completely for free. So if you purchase your membership sometime between January 19th and February 1st, you will be able to access the upcoming 2024 sessions live and watch all the replays from 2023. I cannot think of a better deal than that. So please be sure to mark your calendars and go to recoverycollective.mykajabi.com to get on the wait list so you can be the first to know when doors open on the 19th. Curious to know what it's like inside? Here's what our current members are saying. My favorite part about the Recovery Collective is that as of joining about a year ago, I finally realized how important it is to have a community in recovery. It was definitely a turning point for me to finally talk to someone who's understanding. The people in the Recovery Collective are some of the most lovely, supportive people I've ever met. If you're thinking about joining the Recovery Collective, I have two words to say to you. Do it. Literally just give it a chance. I think you will be surprised in the most wonderful way. Make the jump and join. It's honestly one of the best things I ever did. And I've made some of my best friends from around the world. It's a safe place for me. I know I can say anything and never get judged for it. And I feel that we all truly care about each other. Well, there you have it. Our members have spoken. And I might be a little biased, but I think our community is pretty great too. For more information, check out the link in the show notes and make sure you sign up for the waiting list so you can be the first to join our community between January 19th and February 1st. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Imogen Barnes. Imogen is a lovely human with lived eating disorder recovery experience who has utilized her social media platform to spread eating disorder awareness and recovery inspiration to thousands of beautiful recovery warriors like you across the globe. She's surely a positive influencer in the online recovery space and has a heart of gold. In this episode, we chat about her recovery journey and advocacy work, 
And then we went on a few tangents at the end related to how eating disorders impact family and how comparison with siblings can be the absolute worst. So without further ado, enjoy this interview with Imogen. Hi, Imogen. Welcome to the show. Hello, Meg, and thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for joining me. I know we've been chatting back and forth online, so it was so exciting yesterday when we actually connected and decided to record today. (laughs) I know, it's so exciting, especially because I'm so pathetic at being responding to my um, emails lately. I've just been so sporadic. So it's so amazing that I've finally been able to gather myself and get here. It's incredible. It is incredible. It all worked out. And I'm so, again, very grateful to have you on the show and for you to share your story. I know that many listeners of my show know who you are and care about your story. So I figured why not extend an invite Um, to someone who is known and loved in our community. Here we are. That means the absolute world. It's it's honestly my honor. I'm so grateful to be here myself. So thank you. You're very welcome. Just to start, I would love for you to share the origin story of your eating disorder. If you could just dive in and, and we can take it from there. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So I guess in the grand scheme of things, I think a lot of people's eating disorder stories start with how they childhood was one spent really at war with their appearance and their reflection and their body image and I actually don't have that experience like as a as a kid I was kind of I didn't have the best body image but it wasn't something that really occupied my thoughts all the time my body didn't dominate my every move I didn't think about it frequently I used my body a lot with without consciously doing so I loved sport I did a lot of soccer I loved running I loved was a gymnast. So I was often, I found, I found myself in a leotard quite frequently. And I kind of just went by without a massive awareness of my figure. I just kind of accepted it as it was and lived my life regardless, which is, I think the goal, I think that's, that's the aim of life, right? To just forget about the vessel that's carrying you through it and focus on the life it allows you to live. And my relationship with my body did maintain that kind of like happy medium forever up until the point of being I'm going to say puberty which I think is very common as well Mm -hmm. with people with eating disorders they go everything was fine and dandy until (laughs) I kind of underwent what we all know is like a very massive hormonal feat and a massive time of change in your life and that like period of adolescence where you feel like you kind of don't know yourself. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you want to do. You haven't set yourself up this identity yet. And it's a big time of discovery. And it was around this period of time that I had obsessive compulsive traits my whole childhood, but similar to body image, they didn't dominate my world. However, when I was around 14, I did develop quite severe OCD. Like I had a bunch of bizarre obsessions and compulsions, which people with OCD will be able to relate to. So I had a lot of harm OCD. I was obsessed with the idea of harming someone. And I had this, I was riddled with the fear. What if I did X, Y, Z to someone I love? You know what I mean? And that that fear plagued me and it's not really spoken about. I think you kind of see in media frequently people washing their hands obsessively as a manifestation of OCD. And that definitely does exist, but there are so many other ways OCD can manifest that the media does not portray. So I kind of struggled with that for quite significantly to the point where I was 
seeing a psychologist, a psychiatrist, you know, had a whole treatment team behind me. And my obsessions and compulsions got to the point of being disabling. I couldn't leave the house, I couldn't touch people, I couldn't be in my own bedroom. It was bizarre and it was completely impeding my life. So my psychiatrist at the time was like, We've gotten to the point where we're probably ready to trial medications that are a little bit non-standard. They, they're not medications we whip out unless it's warranted because they have some pretty hefty side effects. This is the kind of thing that we were speaking about. But at this point, I was so destroyed by OCD. I was like, I'm willing to try anything. So I went on a medication that is an old antidepressant that isn't used very often anymore because of its side effects that it carries. But I was I went on this medication and... I was okay with it until I remember really vividly my psychiatrist explaining to me that, oh, this medication carries the potential for you to gain weight. You should just watch what you eat, watch the movement you do, you know, watch your weight. It'll be okay. And I I am perfectionistic. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. This is me at the time. I was like, right. I latched myself onto that idea and was like, my body might exist out of my control now. I've never really thought of that. I better employ behaviors that are going to take back that control that I no longer have apparently. And so that's what I did. And I did, I started employing behaviors that I now recognize are inherently disordered. I was restricting my intake and abusing movement and it very quickly unraveled from this. I'm just going to watch my weight in quotation marks like my psychiatrist innocently informed me to do into a full-blown eating disorder. And so within like six months, of trialing this new medication, I had kind of like swapped over from my life being destroyed by OCD and its domination to what we labeled anorexia, which is such a jarring word, but it's what it was. I had so I developed anorexia and that was what became really dominant in my life. I did end up taking being taken off the medication that I was put on that was given the weight um gained side effect I was taken off that medication but take being taken off the medication obviously didn't remove the eating disorder that I developed mm-hmm. and so that started the battle that I the enduring battle that it turned out to be with anorexia that I faced for the rest of my teen years so honestly my life from the age of 14 was not your average adolescence, I spent a lot of time and this isn't everyone's um, experience and it definitely doesn't validate or invalidate your experience, whether or not you do or do go through it. But I spent a lot of time in hospital. I became quite like cyclical, like a revolving door patient, which I didn't like to admit. But unfortunately, I think the same applies to the healthcare system in America, in the States. I might be wrong, but In Australia, if you are medically unstable because of an eating disorder, you're placed in a medical setting to be restabilized, refed, and that can be really, that's not a treatment management plan that takes into consideration the psychological side of the eating disorder, which is obviously the key component of what makes the eating disorder what it is. And so I really just kept falling back into becoming so swept up in my obsessions and compulsions and my eating disorder cognitions in the community that I would derail my medical stability. I'd end up in a place of needing medical stabilization. So I'd be admitted to a medical hospital. I'd be refed, often not even myself. It would be nasogastrically. It kind of got to a weight that was quote unquote healthy enough to be in the community. And then 
just discharged too, obviously, go home to all the same cognitions that got me there in the first place. And treatment for eating disorders that goes beyond that kind of, that medical mode is very, is limited to almost only private treatment. And that's what you can access with private health insurance, which I did have the entire duration of my battle. But a lot of the help that you can get that's really substantial requires you to be an adult, which is also very bizarre, <laughs> right? It's like, yeah. okay, we know eating disorders don't discriminate, but okay, the treatment does for them, right? So I had to wait till I turned 18 to be able to access private inpatient treatment facilities that would actually target my cognitions and the psychological side of the eating disorder, as well as protecting my medical stability. So until 18, I was always being um, admitted to a hospital against my will. It was involuntary. It was all sorts of awful trauma inflicted with things like mental health acts. And it was not a fun time. But at the age of 18, I kind of got to this point where I was watching all of my my friends and my peers. They were going on and they were living their best life. They were graduating school. They were going on gap years. They were starting uni. They were pursuing their passions. And I was sat kind of watching life from the sidelines, watching all my friends do these incredible things and everyone's life move on. And I was stuck in this monotonous cycle of my eating disorder behaviours. Every day was like Groundhog Day. I knew what every day had in, had in, in store because I did the same thing day in, day out. And I got to this point and I was like, wow, my life is really evaporating and all for what? I get a, a brief fleeting euphoria from these these eating sort of behaviours, I get this dopamine rush that lasts a few minutes. And then it's back to being pretty depressed and pretty mundane and pretty bored. And I'm certainly not being taken to a place of enduring, enduring happiness or fulfilment. And so at this point in time, I kind of really became like, okay, no, my mindset shifted from being like this passive participant in my recovery and just seeing recovery as something that was being done to me and against my will and something that I wanted to reverse to being an active participant in my recovery and seeing that I was actually needed to be the main ingredient that would actually make the recipe work. You know, the recovery wasn't going to work if I wasn't actually allowing it to happen. I wasn't participating. And so at the time I was unwell and I could rationalize that I needed more help than what an outpatient treatment team, the setting could provide. And I didn't want to go inpatient. One part of me wanted to go to hospital voluntarily and that that was laden, a choice laden in terror and dread. But I admitted myself voluntarily to a psychological, like a psych ward essentially, but not the girl interrupted psych ward. It was actually very, it was very recovery orientated and I was surrounded by a group of people that were in the similar position. And I was like, no, I need to consciously work to change my life. Well, this is going to be my life and it's going to be a miserable one. And so I worked really hard and it wasn't just a matter of being admitted once. I was admitted a couple of times to different facilities. I gave a few things a go. Recovery is is not a linear trajectory. It wasn't a matter of being like, no, I want this. And then it was as easy as getting it. I had to work really hard to get to the place that I am today. But I cycled through treatment. I built, like strengthened my own recovery muscle. I got used to using it myself rather than having people do it for me. And I kind of decided to build my life beyond my eating, start pursuing my values and my dreams rather than my disorders, values and dreams, and just have a life that was far more meaningful beyond my food and the body that I lived in. I started studying, I started working, I got like a new identity for myself, pursuing hobbies like 
empowering came to be and I started, I got this passion for advocacy. And as my life grew, because my disorder shrunk, it made it so worthwhile. And that's such a motivation preserving mechanism, seeing your life blossom and you get to the point of being like, in my life, my body image, it's not crash hot. It's not great at all. I don't love my body, but look at the life that this body lets me live. And look at the one that the previous bodies that I've existed in that my disorder had influences over, had an influence over, sorry. What kind of life did that let me live? It was just like, I had to control all my food all the time. I had to perform movement very unjoyfully, the epitome of not joyful. Um, And I was getting nowhere. I had no one and I felt really lonely and really isolated from everything that I loved and everyone that I loved. And so it got to the point where now I'm able to see like it's really hard work. Recovery is the hardest thing ever. Literally, I don't want to shoot. It's not rainbows and sunshines and you're always happy and life is sparkling. It's really difficult work. But the life, the life that it allows you to live is so far superior to the one that your eating disorder allows you to live. It's really revolution. Like it's revolutionary and it kind of takes doing it yourself to realize that. But when you when you get to a place that's so far beyond where you've been, it's you realize just it's worth every hard task it entails. Wow. So beautiful. Thank you for sharing your story and just going through the full picture for us. I really appreciate that. And one thing you said that was really striking to me was that you have to go from being really passive in your recovery to taking an active role in that. And so what was it like when that finally clicked for you? Like, how did your behavior change? How did your mindset change? What did it feel like? So up until that point, my idea of recovery kind of existed within the realms of, okay, so I had this, like, I had a very family-based therapy approach, which is usually the, the treatment mode that's used for kids and teenagers with eating disorders that recruits the family to fight the eating disorder. And that's what it became like. It became this like external battle between me and whoever was fighting the eating disorder because I was acting on behalf of the eating disorder and I was defending it. And I saw the quote unquote recovery actions. So being nourished, being made to nourish myself adequately and being made to rest. I saw these as things that were being done. They were punishment. They were things that I didn't want to be doing that occurred in conflict with all my goals. And in reality, I can rationalize now that they were eating disorder goals. And defending the eating disorder and acting in a way that reflected that. And I was fighting against everything that was going to lead me to a place of recovery and seeing it as something that was sabotaging me rather than saving me. Mm-hmm. And I think the realization that what's actually sabotaging me is the eating disorder itself and I can have all the help in the world but unless I'm willing to save myself and accept help to save myself it's not going to happen and so my behaviors had to change from fighting intervention and fighting the opinions of the people that knew me that loved me that treated me so they were well they were medically and psychiatrically informed I had to stop seeing them as these barriers to being where I wanted to be which was like small and safe and controlled and that was actually not where I wanted to be that was where my eating disorder wanted me to be and I had to see them as enabling me to be the person that I like in my heart Imogen wanted to be and that was a person that could nourish herself that could live a life beyond her body that could pursue 
her dreams, that could study, that could go on to help others. I had to go, okay, I'm recruiting this team of people to fight the eating disorder. And from now on, I'm fighting the eating disorder as well, Mm. instead of this team being recruited to fight my eating disorder and me defending the eating disorder for all everything was worth. Mm. It's like it was you, you and the eating disorder versus your team for a while. Exactly. (laughs) And then you connected with your true self. It sounds like there was almost this clarity, like, oh, I'm acting on behalf of the eating disorder. Where is the real me in here? And then there was that discovery and then the shift maybe happened. Absolutely. I still see a therapist and I spoke to my therapist yesterday and we were discussing that you can want recovery for all that you want it. You can want it for everything. You can be desperate for it, but ultimately what's going to get you to a place of recovery all those actions, but it's really scary and it's allowed to be scary and you're allowed to acknowledge that. And it feels for a long time, like you're actually acting in conflict with what you want to do and what your heart wants. But because an eating disorder is really convincing and you're like, no, I do want this. This does give me safety. This does give me security. I want to protect this for all it's worth. But with like, with time and with trust, you actually rationalize that, no, no, I was wrong. Sorry, this isn't protecting me. This isn't protecting me at all. This is this is out to get me. This is what eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. If my choices are being informed by one, it's not a healthy choice. It's not a choice that aligns with me, with my truest self. And, oh, this is also where I was supposed to be taking this conversation. But if you start thinking about what your eating disorder wants for you, so for me and everyone's different and everyone's eating disorder does paint a different picture for what is ideal. But for me, my eating disorder, like, proposed, you know, that I had being as small as I could possibly be was the ideal and eating as little as I possibly could consume was ideal. But when I started to measure up these ideals against what Imogen, like the actual person in me, what I actually valued, they didn't line up. And when you step away from that like momentary panic of an eating disorder thought and urge and you think, wait, where is this? Where is this goal actually even taking me? If I did, I was the smallest person in the room, you know, what actually comes from that? What changes in my life that's meaningful? What alters in my relationships and How does that change how people that love me see me? You know, what actually is the end point to this, you know, to this achieving this disordered goal? And when you get down to it, it's actually everything that you don't value. And like smallness, like I don't value smallness. When I'm thinking, when I'm I'm on my deathbed, hopefully when I'm 100 years old, I'm not going to be like, wow, I lived such a small life. I had such a small body. What a fulfilling existence. That's not what I'm thinking. I'm going to be thinking oh, look at all the memories I made, all the connections I had, all the experiences I lived out and trying to be the smallest and trying to live up to my disordered ideals actually prevents me seeing those values through the genuine ones that actually matter. It occurs in conflict with what you genuinely want. You just got to step back and recognize that and just be not deterred by the momentary panic and urge to pursue that disordered goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the more and more you share, the more clear it is that it's so important to check in with your most authentic self and like the essence of who you are and 
make sure you're clear with what your values are and get clear on what your eating disorder values too and just see how they don't line up. Absolutely. And see how it's actually disabling you. Your eating disorder is disabling you from being the person that your truest self wants you to be. It's not enabling that at all. Mm -hmm. Yes, I completely agree. And one thing I'm also curious about while you're sharing your story is you mentioned how you started I'm Powering, which is such a beautiful account. And I know you've stepped into this advocacy role So I was wondering, like, how did you get the courage to be the eating disorder recovery advocate in the midst of recovery? Because I know that I I went through an eating disorder and I was terrified to even talk to my closest loved ones about it. And I never opened up till much later. I'm curious to hear what motivated you to start opening up during the process. It was certainly amidst the process, yes. No, actually, in all honesty, I started empowering when I was, so it was 2018. I was in an inpatient admission at the time and I felt really ostracized from society. I felt really separated from my friends. I felt really distanced from, and that at the time I was in a local award, local to my, to my hometown. It wasn't a specialist ward. There weren't any other eating disorder patients on the ward. There weren't any other people my age on the ward. And I just felt completely alone and like no one understood what it was actually like and what I was going through. And my dear friends who were so beautiful and they came and they did did come and visit me and I got contact with them, but I still felt as though there was such a barrier between us because they just didn't have that kind of lived experience. They couldn't relate to what I was going through and it was it was, I just wanted that connection of being able to connect with people who knew what it was like and that we could hold hope for each other and pull each other through what we were, what we were battling. So I started empowering as a little like, okay, I need motivation to commit to recovery. So I'm going to write what I need to read. I'm just going to put pen to paper. I'm going to try and be inspiring. And if at the end of the day, I'm the only one that follows my page, I'll be inspiring myself. It'll be an accountability to recovery that that enables me to help stay true to my truest self. It'll be something that I can rely on to seek motivation in times of belonging to, to perform eating sort of behaviours. I just wanted it to be a, a tool that could strengthen my recovery muscle. At the time, there was an online eating sort of recovery community, but <laughs> it wasn't an eating disorder recovery community. It was kind of like, like TikTok, I mean, excuse me, TikTok, yeah, kind of, like there are toxic sides of TikTok that's relevant, but like Tumblr, kind of the Tumblr-esque kind of eating disorder, it wasn't uncommon to have like your lowest weight in the bio of your Instagram profile. I was like, do you remember that awful, like hideous time? And I was like, I don't want that. I don't want to create another one of those accounts. And I want a food book. I don't want to try and compete to be the sickest, like that is not the account that I want to be. And so I didn't know what an advocate was at the time either. I wasn't trying to be an advocate. It was something that I accidentally kind of fell into like the role of, but I just started writing. I started trying to portray the eating disorder experience minus the rose tinted lens that I saw it through so often online. And I started to seek friendship through a lived experience and a mutual suffering. But in a way that wasn't competitive and it wasn't comparative. It was like, let's pull each other through this. We've got this. Let's build a community here where people understand and where you can 
come and seek solace in knowing you're not alone. You can escape from that sense of ostracism from society and feel like there are people who understand and where you belong. And so that was what I was, I kind of created my account for. And I will be honest, there was a time when it was first started where I still associated my own suffering with a great deal of shame. And there were people in my life that didn't know, well, or people knew, but because I went away for long periods of time, we were in hospital, but I didn't discuss it openly. It wasn't something that I introduced myself with. It wasn't something that I wanted to talk about because I was embarrassed by it. And so my I actually kept my account secret from my loved ones for a really long time until, of course, its following grew to a point of it being something I couldn't necessarily hide from my loved ones. And I'm not proud of the fact that I thought like I could hide it, but it came from a place of shame that I've worked through. I don't associate my struggle with shame anymore. But yeah, it got to the point where I was like, wow, actually, this is kind of gaining a bit of momentum and it's gathered quite a fault, empowering gathered a substantial following. You get a lot of beautiful DMs that confirm it's it's doing the job that I intended it to do from the beginning and that's just providing people with a sense of belonging and understanding. And yeah, it's kind of blossomed to where it is today without, I've put a lot of work into it, but it was never a, it was not the intended outcome when I started it. It was just to not be alone mm-hmm. and not feel alone and just enable communication and connection as best I could. I truly, truly feel like that's typically how the really popular accounts become like substantial is because it's not coming from a place of needing the following or needing to be like an influencer. It comes from a place of, I want to build community. I want to hold myself accountable. I want to have a place to share my thoughts and I don't care who sees it. And it's pretty amazing that deeply resonated with people when did you realize like oh wow this is actually connecting with others oh there are still times when I kind of I forget the influence that it's had I'm not sure when it first started I suppose when I I think it really solidified that empowering was having an influence when the people in my life when people started telling me people like my loved ones are like my friends, oh, I stumbled across your account. I had no idea you had this account, but, you know, and I would be like, it for a moment, I'd be like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, they found it. Oh, they know all my deepest, darkest thoughts. Um, then, <laughs> a little pants that's in. Yeah, no, it's kind of like, oh, you've read my diary. That was the kind of, that was the reaction at the mm-hmm. beginning. That's because that's what it looked like. It's like, oh, it does nothing to hide there. That confirmed it for a while. And, and it's also the beautiful people that it reached and the people that have so kindly message me and I was that person one time where I remember really passionately messaging a YouTuber that I'd watched once when I was in the midst of my eating disorder and just said thank you for talking about eating disorders I've got one and I feel so alone and I remember being that person that was out you know being thankful to someone else and now it was I had become that person myself and I was getting messages and people were expressing their gratitude for what I'd written and done. And that was just, oh, it was all incredible. And it was, it meant everything. And even now it was quite shocking the other day. Oh, I was in another state recently, just the other week. And I was trying on, I really hope that the beautiful person that I met is listening to this, but I was trying on some dresses and I came out of the dressing room in this shop and um, I heard this girl speak to her boyfriend, obviously through the change room, and she said, oh, I'm going to get this hat. And he was like, 
oh yeah like cheering her on like go you and I was like Stella and I was like I walked out and I was like oh you guys are goals like relationship goals and I just continued on like nothing and I was paying for the dress that I tried on at the at the counter and the girl that I'd just spoken to she came up to me she said is your name Amy and I was like yeah and she was like oh I follow your account and oh I just I appreciate so much what you've done do you mind if I give you a hug and I was like what in the world I and my dad was with me and he was like he's always kind of like bought like just like I don't know if your dad's the same but he's like social media oh the digital age oh my god um (laughs) but he was like oh what you just got recognized and I was like apparently so wow and so that's happened a couple of times and I've been like holy dooly like I don't have a I don't have like the following of I don't have millions and millions but the fact that it's reaching anyone is really it's really cool yeah it's really heartwarming that is heartwarming and so funny. <laughs> I, know, I was so like, also, I want you, like, oh, like, look at your boyfriend cheering you on. That is what you want. Oh, yeah. Wow. What a, what a cute little story. I hope that ha- I'm sure that will continue to happen to you. The more you're vulnerable with the world. I think it's just, it catches fire when, when something really connects. So that's so cool to hear. And I actually wanted to ask you something about something you mentioned earlier, which is taking the shame out of your suffering. Cause you mentioned you don't connect with shame as much anymore. So how does that relate to your advocacy work now and your journey? Yeah. So I feel like silence and not talking about not discussing things that society deems taboo or whatever that fosters a lot of shame whenever we don't talk about something there's a reason behind why we're not talking about something and a lot of the time for whatever reason we associate that with shame we associate that thing with embarrassment we think oh how mortifying but when you when you really consider shame and you you consider when it's justified it's shame is justified when you've very consciously performed a behavior that is maybe has malicious intent or that is really in conflict with your values and is something maybe that you have complete control over and you do regardless you perform the behavior regardless that maybe maybe these things it's a very nuanced concept but maybe these kind of behaviors do warrant shame and genuine shame but having something like an eating disorder that is completely out of your control like it is an illness at the end of the day. That's not something, why should we associate shame with something that we don't have control of? Like I remember a therapist saying to me, I said, oh, I'm just so embarrassed to be here. And here being, I was in an, a treatment setting. I just, so it's, it's embarrassing that I'm still here. And she said, why are you embarrassed? And I was like, I am, I just am. And she said, you don't have, you have an illness. You don't have, you're not controlling this. And that was like really profound to me. We do have some motive of control when it comes to actioning recovery, but you don't choose to have an eating disorder. It's not a conscious choice. It's not one that you make with intent. You don't want to do harm. It's something that you suffer from. It's an illness. And even I think it's very easy to internalize shame when it comes to having an eating disorder and the rippling impact that it can have on the loved ones because undeniably it has it has an impact on the people that love you um if you have cancer 
your loved ones are going to carry that, that they're going to be desperate for you to be better. They're going to try everything for you to be better. They might blame themselves for not noticing you becoming sick or you might blame yourself if you're a cancer patient for not noticing symptoms sooner and acting acting on them. But you never once are ashamed to have cancer. You don't say, oh, I'm so embarrassed to be here in oncology. I shouldn't be here. This is embarrassing. We don't talk about other illnesses like they're these choice. But for some reason when it comes to mental illness, we just assign so much choice and so much moral meaning to the suffering. That's just so misplaced and it's unfair. It just places this unnecessary burden on the sufferer and their loved ones of this displaced emotion that doesn't serve healing. No amount of shame makes you better. No amount of blaming yourself or berating yourself makes you better. And there's no place for shame in any suffering, eating disorders, mental health included. It's just like if you have cancer or diabetes, it's not a choice. You deserve recovery. It's not something that you should be embarrassed about. Yeah. I used to be an instructor and actually it was a program that was founded in Australia called Mental Health First Aid. Are you familiar with it? I am. I am. Okay, cool. So I was an instructor for that for a few years and they used to encourage us to like think if you broke your leg, would you be embarrassed about that? Or would you refuse to get help or physical therapy because you broke your leg? It's like an immediate no. If anything, it's like, obviously I'm going to get help for my leg. Nobody thinks about it. And for some reason, we don't bridge that. We don't have that same response when there's a mental illness. We do take on so much more responsibility and shame and blame for it, which is so disheartening. And I remember when I started talking about my recovery, I felt shame because I felt like I was making my parents look like bad parents. I don't know if you felt that. Oh my goodness. You just struck me to my core, Meg. Yes. (laughs) I was like, if I become an eating disorder recovery coach, are people going to think my parents were bad parents? Do you know what? This is really funny that you brought this up. Well, not funny. I mean, it's like perfect. I definitely understand this. And my mother, my mom, my amazing mom is actually studying to become a Carolyn Coston Oh, wow. Right. And she, she holds a lot of shame with, she tried her absolute hardest to be everything that I needed to recover and she couldn't do it alone. I needed help. Lo and behold, shockingly, I needed more help than she could give, which is not, which is usually like the universal experience when it comes to eating disorders. You you can't fix it alone. It doesn't matter who you are. You need help. We need to recruit a team. But she felt a lot of shame and she thought, well, what if people think I'm a bad coach? Or what if it's a bad idea to go into coaching if I couldn't alone coach my daughter out of her eating disorder? And it's like, it's sad to think. I know, because it's like, oh, like it's no one's sole responsibility to recover or to help someone else recover. It is so much more multifaceted than that and there is no place for blame no matter what the role that you play in someone's life with an eating disorder if you're a parent your parenting didn't cause that person's eating disorder you're not to blame I think a lot of parents hold that you know that mm-hmm. my my what if it was something I said or something I said about myself or what if they modeled my behavior 
And these are all things that potentially influence an eating disorder, but there's no one, one singular cause that you can go, that is what, that is the one thing, the one singular thing that gave me an eating disorder, you know, doesn't matter yet. My parents didn't cause my eating disorder. And if anyone's listening who's a parent of someone with an eating disorder, it's not your fault. You're not to blame. And also if you're listening and you have an eating disorder, you haven't failed your parents, you shouldn't be ashamed because you haven't, you you want more than anything to recover for everyone else. That's also something that you beat yourself up about. You love my family so much. They don't deserve this. Why can't I just recover for them? It's a lot harder than that. And carrying any amount of shame does not make the recovery process easier. Mm -hmm. Oh, you just shared so much, I'm sure, helpful words to those listening right now, because it's so true. I feel like I've never talked to anyone about like how much we think about that. Like when you do share your story, there is a level that other people around you might be affected and it's not one person or one situation. An eating disorder comes with a culmination of like the perfect storm. And that's one thing I always like to remind my clients, members of my community, my, even my parents, like there's a culmination of things that brought about my eating disorder. So for instance, I'm an identical twin. And when I found out that being an identical twin is a risk factor for an eating disorder, I was like, oh, see another reason why like I shouldn't be blaming myself or my family or anything like that. So much out of your control. So many risk factors. Oh, this is potentially... I mean, everything that just came out of your mouth was so accurate. Like it could be written in a book. Honestly, we need to, we need a license. We need to tattoo that on our bodies so we never forget it. No one else ever forgets it. I have a friend who had an eating disorder and she was also an identical twin. And someone said to her, and I don't know if you've ever had a similar experience, but someone said, but you have a literal like replica of what you'd look like if you didn't have an eating disorder. Is that what you're embarrassed to become? And I was like, what? You know, like, and they're like, why are you afraid if you know exactly what you'll look like recovered? And I was like, that, that seems really, yeah, is that, how does that, does that, does I, this person retelling me this story, she was like shuddering. I was like, does that make, did you ever have anything like that? Or does that, would that have just like, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when I, well, first of all, my sister and I both ended up with eating disorders because a lot of times you feed off of each other and you, you don't want to be bigger twin. Like that was kind of something that fueled our kind of competitive eating disorders. And when I was going through puberty, I would look at my twin and see shame because I was embarrassed of her and I didn't want to become her. And we were both equally awkward and weird and like gangly and (laughs) we're also about six feet tall and we had acne. So it was like looking at something I was mortified to become and she was mortified to become me. It's really messed up to be a twin sometimes. It's like really sad to think about because we love each other so much now. We not we have none of that at this point of our lives. But once we had like going through puberty was really tough. And then I guess thinking about, and I just want to make a comment about seeing the replica and what your body would look like when you're recovered. Like we have to remember that just because you have the same DNA doesn't mean your body's going to be identical to that person. So there's so many environmental factors that come into play that impact the way you look, 
impact your size, impact like aging, impact all those things that twins experience separately. So it's just like in my mind, we can't turn to the other twin and be like, this is how I'm supposed to look. Oh my goodness. And uh, that must be like, I cannot begin to imagine the complexity like that gave, that added to your suffering, having that, first of all, like that, oh, that unconditional love for your twin. Like, oh, the desperation for her to get better and then for to want to be better for her as well and just how scary of a process of recovery that must have been to also have someone that you were comparing yourself to again. Like not only were we comparing our eating disorders, now we're comparing our recoveries. But it's like, oh, fantastic. What another layer of complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's like now I'm very lucky because I don't compare myself. I, I feel like I got so compared as a twin that I'm not prone to comparing myself at all to anybody ever. But the twin is still the the most difficult comparison to face for sure. Oh, and also because for some reason, the human race is so like, for some reason, it just gets this like you're allowed to compare twins. You're allowed to verbally compare twins. You're allowed to express your opinions on twins. You're like, what is that? Why do people think it's okay to compare you to your twin? Why is that more socially acceptable than it is com- to compare other people and other situations and other bodies? Like, it's not. So true. I've never heard someone put it that way. But yeah, what? why is everyone entitled to making those comparisons so freely and out loud and Absolutely. And do you know, it's actually really funny because also I have two sisters and we all have really different bodies All like, we all have our similarities and we all have things where we are obviously we're sisters here. Like I'll give you a funny example. We all inherited my mom's big toe. (laughs) For whatever reason, that is something we all got. But I have a sister with blonde hair and blue eyes. I have a sister who is like 20 centimeters taller than I am who has paler skin than I do. There are so many things that regardless of our similarities, we have really, really massive differences. And I always grew up comparing my bodies to that of my sisters. And it's it's funny because you give yourself like, for some reason that's okay and that's mm-hmm. you're allowed to compare yourself to your sisters. But it's actually so, like, it doesn't matter how, how perfect your DNA lines up to each other's. That's it. Like environmental determinants are still determinants of your your body size. So it doesn't they still have an influence. And also, you know, there are just so many factors. It, this, comparison is just so invalidating. It's so like thieving of joy and happiness. And it's just, I just wish we could just sap it from all our lives, really. But anyway, I'm not sure well, that's possible. Honestly, what, like being one of three sisters, I think is also very difficult and un probably uncomfortable to be vastly different because people still make those comparisons like oh like Emmy is the pretty one or so-and-so is the smart one or it's like I find when I was a twin sometimes I was grateful that we were identical because we couldn't say who was prettier who was thinner who was it was like we were so similar that there was no obvious winner and I was sometimes I felt grateful for that Yeah, there was a safety in that. There is a safety in that. But then also I saw fraternal twins who are vastly different in certain ways. So non-identical twins get compared even more viciously. So I feel like sometimes sisters might experience that too. 
Oh, siblings. It's already hard enough. There's already a rivalry. <laughs> I'm a middle child as well. That's it. Any middle children listening, I hear you. I feel you. I get that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. This conversation just went to three different episode topics at once. <laughs> like we went Yeah, really passionately as well, didn't they? We, we really carried that everywhere. <laughs> that's what that's why I love doing this show. They, and why I love working in the field that I work with, because when I connect with people who also have lived experience, they typically feel just as passionately as I do. They're just as emotional as I do. They've had like they're just very deep humans. That's why it's really nice to connect with people who have lived experience because sometimes the temperaments are similar or at least the emotionality and the depth is there. Oh yeah. I feel like eating disorder sufferers are a really special, a special breed. And I mean that in the best way, like there is no way to look like you have an eating disorder, but there's definitely a type like it isn't there's a type of person that an eating disorder definitely targets and there are we can say the flaws in those types of people that were maybe a bit perfectionistic and maybe a bit obsessive in nature but also generally speaking we're really really compassionate we're really selfless we're really bubbly we're actually really we heavily value things that seems like we don't and we don't actually place value on people's appearance I've never met someone with an eating disorder who was an insanely kind and so remarkable and that is the seems to be a really common thread amongst us and it's why I'm also so grateful to have lived experience because it does mean I get connected with beautiful people like you who are so similar and that get it but are just like oh we're the same person we can like I can sit in a room can even talk for hours it's it's incredible yeah I completely agree it's been such a nice conversation with you today and I'm so grateful that we had the chance to connect Thank you so much for having me. It's meant the world. All right, that concludes this week's episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the show. When you have a moment, please head on over to Instagram and follow my recovery coaching account at Meg underscore McCabe to stay up to date on everything I'm doing in recovery land. And if you're feeling extra inspired, please send me a direct message to let me know how this podcast has impacted your life. I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week.